Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. Well, we are starting, we are ending the year with with a bang. <laughs> you know, it 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 it's it's funny. I, for those of you who kind of spend too much time on on Twitter or social media, like I do, I don't know if you remember, but going all the way back to 2016, there was this there was this kind of meme or or discussion or. I don't know what you want to call it, where, ah, 2016, the year from hell. Can't wait till 2016's over, you know? <laughs> Remember that? And of course, uh, then then it, you know, there was this idea, it was this crazy year of Trump and all his wildness. And obviously, he's going to lose the election and then things are going to, things are going to go back to normal. But of course, 2017 was the year Trump became president. And then 2018, and then 2019, when he got uh, impeached the first time, and and blah 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 blah. And then 2020 was when the pandemic started, and 2021 was the comeback year. We got vaccines; we're good to go. Uh, you know, Biden's coming in, going to clean up the mess. Well. It hasn't quite turned out that way. And uh, as you know, uh, in the last week, we have seen two things happen. Week, 10 days, I'm, I'm back to that, that you know, uh, spring 2020, losing track of, of, of the passage of time or, you know, time dilation or something like that. But we are ending uh, 2020 with two things, uh, one being the apparent demise of, of the president's domestic policy agenda, because uh, the White House put out a statement that included Joe Manchin's name, and he flipped out and uh, decided to kill the whole thing. And also, uh, out of the blue, we have this Omicron thing, and as I think everybody has said countless times, it's not the spring of 2020. The great majority of the country or the people who are eligible to be vaccinated are vaccinated. Their risks of life-changing effects are, are, are quite low. And there's even some emerging evidence. You know, it's one of these things where it's hard to say what the science is when you're talking about something that was first discovered about six weeks ago, right? It's not, it's not the spring of 2020. And yet, we're ending 2021 with some kind of uncanny reminders of it. You know, we're not going to have the same horrible numbers of people dying. We don't have immune, we don't have naive immune systems, all that kind of stuff. But there is this sense of you know, you, you get a sense of some, you, you hear about something the first time and it's, oh, you just heard about it, whatever. And then like swoosh, you're in the midst of a kind of a, a, a viral hurricane. And at least, at least for those of us, and I think this is probably the case um, around the country, the things are moving so quickly, at least in the New York City area, in a period of like two or three days, for me, for many of my friends, suddenly a lot of people you know are testing positive for COVID. 
and 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 you know we all remember okay what was it like 18 months ago you know this many people well now kind of like wow it seems like 10 times as many people and that sense of like wow things have like kind of turned on a dime and what what's happening here so there is this very uncanny kind of deja vu for the great majority of us who are vaccinated the risks are much much lower and because the risks are much lower the kind of precautions you take are different you know you take a certain set of precautions because yeah you don't want to get sick you don't want to be kind of laid up for a week and all that kind of stuff a different set of precautions you take if like oh i might die <laughs> so it's different and yet again that sense of everything getting upended on a dime because of something that happened on the other side of the globe and because of this interconnected world we live in what's happening uh somewhere probably in south africa but we don't know exactly and then suddenly it's in the it's in the bronchial tubes of your work colleague things change fast uh in any case uh this is let me let me let me tell you that this is the last episode of the josh marshall podcast for uh 2021 we are going to take uh one holiday uh by week which is the uh, wednesday the 29th next wednesday um, so don't expect a podcast then, but we will be right back in early January, first Wednesday, of January, you know, back to the normal schedule and all of that stuff. Let me remind you, uh, as long as doing a little housekeeping here, that the uh, Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Now, th this is kind of funny thing because this is copy we had for sort of the, you know, the, the, the holiday travels. As we know, a lot of people's holiday travels are, are, are being disrupted at the moment. I just, I just uh, heard from a friend who, uh, you know, flew back to the homeland somewhere in the Midwest for the holidays. And uh, now a parent has COVID and everything's off and all that kind of stuff. And people return, you know, people going back to their homes and all that kind of stuff. And that, that story is being played out, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of times uh, uh, across the country. But let's take a little, uh, little uh, detour back to the to the before times of a week and a half ago when that wasn't happening while you're packing up the kids dogs and sweaters for your annual visit to your in-laws house don't forget to pack a Grady's cold brew kit because without proper planning drinking a single sip from your mother-in-law's moldy coffee pot will be even harder on your stomach than watching OANN -N over family dinner luckily the Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy to drink delicious coffee on the go just toss in some bean bags add water stick the couch in the fridge overnight and you'll have smooth flavorful coffee all week long if you're ready to give it a try get 25 percent off at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm that's grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm so uh uh co-host kate riga what um what is i mean at, at this point i almost want it I, I don't want there to be any sign that the bbb is coming back to life because i can't go through that again because i know it's really dead and I don't want to be like, I don't want to be played with and get and get ramped up again and, and, and into tea leaf reading about, you know, about Joe Manchin and all, all whatever. So what's going on? I mean, it's funny to think about that we actually haven't recorded since Manchin upended kind of the whole democratic agenda and political world. But, you know, debrief for any of our listeners who perhaps chose to detach from Twitter for mental health or something else like that. You know, Manchin came out on a Fox News interview on Sunday saying he's a no on the current legislation. Uh, the White House shot out a blistering statement saying that he'd been essentially negotiating in bad faith, that that's not the impression he'd been giving in his White House negotiations. So it's just been kind of endless fallout since then. You know, um, Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus had a press call on Monday where she just, you know, pulled no punches, said that he had shown a lack of integrity, that there was no use negotiating with him going forward because his word clearly couldn't be trusted. Um, and 
so it's kind of we had all we had this day of like just democratic rage at mansion that was kind of the theme of monday followed by the flurry of think pieces full of recriminations for what democrats did wrong um you know like how dare they kind of handle him with anything but kid gloves it's it's because they named him in a statement and they were too harsh and how dare they you know uh he went on a, a west virginia radio show where he you know got all pissy at white house staff and said they know what they did and then you know you josh were among those who reported that what they did was name him in like the mildest statement you can imagine describing the hold up with the bill and not even 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 mild suggests it's it is a mild form of criticism <laughs> right. I think to anybody in the in, in on back on planet earth it was like a very cordial, hey, we had a good talk. I'm feeling good about it. We're going to keep talking, Joe right. Manchin. <laughs> that was like <laughs> the, the final straw. Anyway, interrupted you. Sorry. Right. No, no, no. So that was kind of phase one. Phase two was, I would categorize it as stuff that would perhaps give Manchin pause, which is some economic forecasters coming out and downgrading where they think GDP growth will be in 2022 with this bill's demise looking more certain. And then we had the biggest coal miners union in the country asking him to reconsider his stance in a kind of a very clear eyed way saying, we're going to lose coal jobs regardless, at least build back better kind of paves a way for people who lose those jobs to do something else, you know, the ability to get tax credits for going into the the green sector and building out of renewable. So, you know, let's do that instead of having the coal jobs disappear and get absolutely squat for it. And we also had some, even some moderates kind of being like, oh no, this is going to be bad. You know, you have Abigail Spanberger of no one elected Biden to be FDR fame coming out and saying it's unacceptable for him to walk away from this. You have the new Democrat coalition uh, of kind of centrist House members saying can't abandon it at this point. It's too important. Uh, so those are kind of the phases we've been in. And now we're in this. Can I can I add one yeah. one one thing to that? One thing that jumped out during that that phase of it to me was Josh Gottheimer, mm -hmm. who is certainly not the only moderate in the House, but he's the one who spearheaded the thing that, in a lot of ways, kind of got us here, which was to to force you know force to the front a vote on all that you know the promise for a vote on the infrastructure bill and but the funny thing is though as much as he was always kind of a troublemaker in this his big thing is the salt tax deduction and that was always in in the in the reconciliation bill so kind of like the thing that he wanted more than anything else his his first second and third thing are done now. So he's like hosed and he was like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 mansion, dude, what, you know, <laughs> we're playing, we're, we're playing theater here. What are you doing? Anyway, sorry, exactly. second interruption. There no, totally right. And then, so now we're in phase three, which the more cynical of us would call the Lucy and the football phase, but it's basically kind of a reopening of negotiations where people are keeping lines of communication to Manchin open. Jayapal called him on Tuesday to say, here, take the text of the House bill and cross off what you don't want and we'll go from there. News came out that back last week, Manchin had given the White House his kind of counter offer, which was a $1.8 trillion package with universal pre-K for 10 years, Obamacare expansion, hundreds of billions of dollars to like climate change that they had the White House had essentially still been kind of chewing over when he was like pulled the rug out from under them and went on Fox and said, I can't support it in its current form. But all of those data points kind of lead up to this picture of maybe there's something he would still support here. It's going to be much smaller and less ambitious than what Democrats wanted to do. But you can see a world where there's, you know, a $1.75 trillion package with a few things in it that he would vote for. It it's you know there's a couple things here and it, and it's you know th this is I, I there's a reader we have uh, whose initials are JB who talks about a lot that there's a reason we used to legislate with what was called regular order where we go into you know you kind of have hearings and you do markups and 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 this stuff is you know, there's always a lot of backroom stuff, but at least there's a public part of it. What's so hard here is that none of it is public. 
So it's very hard to have any sense of of what you're even talking about and what you're getting at there, Kate, with with you know this supposed counteroffer. There was yet another, you know, kind of eddy of this progression that you've been walking us through, where you had some people basically say coming in and saying, "Oh no, no, no! It's the the White House got too big for its britches," and kind of you know tried to kind of hardball Mansion. And, and what they were saying was, "Okay, now we find out that Mansion, you know, now we have no BBB, we have absolutely nothing, we have nothing for climate, blah 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 blah." But now we find out that Mansion actually offered this this package that had tons of stuff, had you know, kind of basically pretty much the whole climate thing that at least we've been thinking about for the last you know within recent weeks. And the key was he was just saying, "We're forgetting the child tax credit thing." We're not going to do something where it's for a couple of years and disappears and something like that. Now, that obviously is a very, you know, a very tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. However, when you start comparing it to getting absolutely nothing on anything, it, it, it you know, it, it changes. So, you had this thing where you've got a lot of commentators saying like, oh, that what were you thinking? You know, kind of turning down that still huge offer that had pre-K and Obama, blah, 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 blah. Now, my understanding of this, at least, and some of this is based on on my own reporting pretty close to the people involved, is that, well, that gets a few things different. One, Kate has already mentioned, which is the White House didn't think they said no to anything. They were still thinking about it. And suddenly Manchin is on TV saying, forget the whole thing because of this thing of using his name. But there's another part to it, which is my understanding that coupled with that was Manchin saying, here's what I will offer in April. Like, not like we're voting on this now. And, you know, whether it was March or April, you know, maybe a little squishiness there, but basically into the spring, well into the spring. So there's a couple things with that. First of all, if you're negotiating, if you're kind of post-dating it like that, you're not going to rush and say, okay, yeah, yeah, done. I love that. I'm going to, in April. Like, you're probably going to try to, you know, still work at it a bit, just, you know, human nature. The other part of it is, who at this point trusts a post-dated check from Joe Manchin? Are you really going to say, oh, fantastic, man. We got a deal. Let's, let's get out there and do a press conference that we have a deal on something that we'll, we'll come back to in April. I mean, are you kidding? Right. Now, this is this is, you know, Manchin's whole idea of the strategic pause and to see where inflation is and all this kind of stuff. And you know, it's it's one of these things where, you know, in general you want to you don't want to be voting on this kind of stuff during an election year for all sorts of reasons that are just kind of what everybody's decided, you know, why is that the case exactly? But in so many of these things, if you could really trust that, okay, here's our deal. We're going to vote on it in April. Well, okay. I mean, April, December, I mean, we're talking about 10-year program, right? And on the climate stuff, obviously, you're talking about things that have impact over decades. So, in a sense, no big deal. But again, why would anybody trust that at this point, given, given what we've gone through? Especially the way that Manchin comes up with, you know, he actually in his unfolding explanations of why he was finally walking away from these things, suddenly it was no longer just inflation. It was also the threat of Russia and China. We got to keep keep money in the bank because we need, may need to deal with the threat of Russia. I mean, what? This isn't even about like whether you think we already spend too much money on the Pentagon budget. But I mean, the threats we face from Russia and China, both very different ones, they are not ones that require any kind of near-term military buildup. That's just, that, that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. And you kind of come back to like, okay, if, if, if this is a done deal, why are we waiting till April? Obviously not a done deal. It's also kind of of a piece with how Manchin has been operating the whole time. Because if you remember that memo that he and Schumer signed that, you know, stayed private for a long time, one of Manchin's bullet points was we won't start debating this until October 1st. You know, and we were reporting on this all summer, kind of what is the holdup? What does he and that want? That was like shocking at the time. Right. Like now exactly. October is like early, but yeah. yeah. Totally. But it, it's so of this thing where he, you know, he 
really, I just think is fond of the phrase strategic pause and sees it as some kind of indicator of moderation to drag this out as slowly and agonizingly and make everyone involved look as bad as humanly possible until it finally gets passed. So, you know, I think that's a huge part of this is that he keeps in public or in private, leaving little breadcrumbs that's just enough for Democrats to be like, oh, no, 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 it's not totally dead. He indicated this, or he said this, or he has not taken this off the table. Enough to kind of keep the, the negotiations and the diplomacy going. And the attention on him. Exactly. The and then, on him going. And then it'll be a many month stretch where you're kind of like, where are we? We're nowhere, you know, because then the other Democrats are basically trying to figure out what something to do. So they're like quibbling over actual policy disputes within the bill, but nothing, nothing is really changing. And then he'll come out and lay down some marker in the sand where you're like, dude, what? (laughs) You know, the biggest one to date was, I think, when he took the top line down kind of out of nowhere. It's just like, why did you let people debate a $3.5 trillion bill for so long if you were never going to be for it? I mean, that's just kind of how he's operated this whole time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the, you know, one of the arguments, and again, going over the arguments that Joe Manchin makes is a classic example of something they call overdetermined. There's not, there's not really a lot there. So there's really a point of diminishing returns about getting into what the arguments mean since they're just sort of, you know, kind of, kind of chatter. But one, you know, in that whole drama about you named me, you named me, you didn't name cinema. That's not fair. Blah, 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 blah. Now with cinema, she is also a problem here, but I mean, come on. The whole, the whole statement was an announcement about you're having to meet that mansion had a meeting with Biden. So why are they going to mention cinema with that. But his other point was, hey, other people are still negotiating things. There's salt stuff, you know, kind of a lot of other cinema. Why aren't they getting dinged too? And, and you know, mostly like, come on, man, you know, give me, give me a break. But to the extent we can focus in on something here is that there are other people negotiating, but that is also a product of, of, of mansion. Because as long as nothing is nailed down, yeah, you kind of keep talking about it. You, you have no idea where he is. So are you going to have money for a salt tax deduction? Are you not going to have money for it? Are you going to have, you know, are you going to be able to do a uh, drug negotiation thing? You know, the way you do a negotiation, certainly in a business or legal negotiation, you are slowly nailing certain portions of the of the thing down. And as those kind of negotiations, you know, professional negotiations, good faith negotiations. Um, and I know this because even though it wasn't the, uh, uh, kind of my life plan uh, running TPM, I've had to do this a lot myself. You know, you nail things down and you do not revisit them. That is a big no-no, right? You don't know. Obviously, before a contract is signed, everything in theory is open, but you're slowly nailing things down. And that, you know, kind of, I might agree to this because I know that other thing is already nailed down. And we're getting momentum because the number of things that are not nailed down is getting smaller and smaller. That's how negotiations work. But what Manchin has done is basically say nothing is nailed down, which means nothing is possible and everything's possible. And as long as that's the case, people are going to still keep talking about everything because they don't really know what's going on. You can't negotiate that way. Exactly. And I I mean, I've seen some speculation that's like, it would be a really hard bargain to get progressives to agree to a bill of the parameters that that counteroffer was reported, you know, just a few programs for 10 years. And it's like, come on, would they be mad? Absolutely, of course. But, you know, the Congressional Progressive Caucus knows as well as the rest of us that Manchin is perfectly happy to walk away from anything. If they can get anything from him, they're going to take it. That's silly to me. But pretending for a moment that that 
that that's real, that that is the kind of package that he will agree to at some point down the line. Like you said earlier, Josh, you know, the big glaring omission from that is, of course, the child tax credit, which if you could boil down the most emotional issue to the most Democrats, that's what it would that's what most of them are most proud of. And now that there's data kind of backing up what a huge effect it had on child poverty, it's all the more wrenching to consider cutting from the bill. So Let's imagine for a a world for a moment where the reconciliation bill is what Manchin offered to the White House, you know, universal pre-K, expansion of Obamacare, climate stuff. Okay, that's taken care of. Now, what do you do with the child tax credit? You know, and there's been a lot of attention on the fact that Mitt Romney has his own child tax credit uh, program, his own version, which he tweeted out, you know, kind of couched in a gleeful, well, now that reconciliation is dead for good. Here's my proposal. And in some ways, there are things about it Democrats don't like. It's paid for by cutting other programs that are meant to alleviate poverty. However, those programs don't are not su- super effective. They don't work super well. So I think there could be some room for Democrats to get okay with it. And his proposal is actually shockingly very generous and includes the lowest income people who have been omitted in all previous iterations of the child tax credit. So I do think in a 50-50 Senate, it's something that Democrats could probably hold their nose and get on board with. But then you have the problem of- Doesn't he also use uh, uh, SALT, the money from mm-hmm. not having a salt tax deduction. I right. mean, obviously that's kind of a, a way to kind of stick it to Dems, but but right. yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's not perfect. I mean, you wouldn't expect Mitt Romney to craft a proposal that Democrats love, but you come up against the same problem. You know, it's all well and good to have Romney on board. Now, who are the other nine Republicans going to be? And it's just yeah. a, the same yeah. situation where I think at one point, Democrats would have been like, what an issue. This will move Manchin for sure. It's child poverty. You know, how are you against it? But he's shown he doesn't really care. Well, it's also that there's I mean, there's a few a few points here. I mean, and and uh, this has been an issue that has been around forever. There have been lots of child tax credits for years and years and years. The issue has always been that they're not refundable. Mm-hmm. And if they're not refundable, basically what that means is if you, you, you are just getting a tax deduction against your taxes. Now, but what if you don't pay any income taxes? Then you don't get anything. Now, the, the about half the country, or not half the, I think almost half the population does not pay net income taxes. They pay lots of taxes. They don't, I, don't, don't hold me to that exactly. A huge, most certainly Virtually everyone who's in poverty, by any definition, does not pay income taxes, pay payroll taxes, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So the point is, what you're really talking about is a subsidy to uh, middle class families. And, that, and that's not bad. That, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, for, for uh, you know, depending on where you cap it and stuff like that. But where it really makes a difference are for the working poor and, and you know, everybody in poverty. You know, you're not you're not lifting kids out of child poverty if you're if you're giving tax deductions to middle class families. And again, the benefit to middle class families, as long as you're not going too high up on the income scale, that's great, too. But it's always come down to this thing about whether it's refundable, i.e., if you don't pay taxes, is the government going to give you a refund to actually send you money? That's where it becomes a game changer. And again, we've been having this conversation for 25 years and in different forms long before that. But I mean, like when I was back at the American Prospect 20 plus years ago, we were talking about this and it was all, you know, the Republican line is, well, we don't want to be writing checks. You know, this is what we expect. They don't want to, they don't want to be uh, sending money to people who are in poverty. Okay. What came up late in this thing was Manchin apparently got upset that people are saying he doesn't like the child tax credit, but he's like, oh, I like it. I just don't like it if it's refundable. Like, dude, what? I mean, and this is kind of, this is kind of one of those examples where you may not like uh, Manchin's views, but it gets a little frustrating sometimes when you're like, dude, you, you don't even know what we're talking about, do you? You know, you're, you're just kind of like a glad handing dude who who these policy questions that you are determining everything, you haven't even like taken the time to figure out what they even do. 
and and just just one more thing here before I give it back to Kate. Another thing that came up in the last week or so is apparently he's telling like his colleagues, like, you know what? Those families are just going to use this for like drugs and shit. So I don't want to do that. And I mean, dude, like you see what you're working with here. I mean, you know, kind of like you're, you're, uh, we think we're talking about refundability levels and blah, 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 blah. And he's, you know, talking about the parents using it to buy weed or something or, you know, opioids or whatever. Like, you're like, man, what planet are we on here? Or who are we negotiating with? I mean, I know lots of people think that. But if you're talking about passing the bill, if one of those people is you need their vote, that's a problem, to put it mildly. I mean, and and not to mention, Manchin represents the poorest state in the country. And it's just, what a, an open expression of disdain for his own constituents. It's funny, you know, I when I when I first heard that that comment and again, to be fair, we have not he has not said this on the record. This is supposedly what he has told colleagues. I mean, I think it happened, but I just want to be clear on that. Um when I first heard that, I saw it, heard it in very raced terms. You know, cuz we've been talking about welfare queens and all that stuff mm-hmm. for decades and decades. But what one pe- but a few people told me is the, the sort of the nature of what he was saying that they thought he was really talking about his own constituents. You know, yeah. there's a huge opioids problem in West Virginia. It's you know it's 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 a very poor Appalachian state. There's a huge opioids problem. So, you know, it shows you what you're what you're working with. Well, and I think the reason why that reporting is very easy to believe is because Manchin's whole line this entire time has been, you know, we don't, no entitlement state. There must be work requirements attached to everything. Like I remember talking to Sherrod Brown, where one of his biggest breakthroughs with getting Manchin on board with the child tax credit earlier on in the process was he was the one who was like, dude, there can't be work requirements. A lot of kids are raised by their grandparents. Like, what are you talking about? And that was like revelatory to Manchin. So, I mean, it's it's all of a piece of this kind of worldview of a very rich man who's very disconnected from the reality of his constituents. Uh, and like you say, who's, who's no kind of policy workhorse, who has no interest <laughs> in the specifics. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly, to put it mildly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's do a little White House corner here, uh, segueing by saying uh, Biden kind of spoke briefly about Manchin yesterday. He made a little joke about people don't think I'm Irish because I don't hold grudges, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, concluded by not taking the bait when someone asked him if Manchin broke his word to him, Biden, by saying, you know, Senator Manchin and I are going to get something done. So that's kind of where that is from the White House. Meanwhile, the White House is juggling a few other things right now. Uh, on the pandemic front, they announced that they're going to make 500 million free rapid at home tests with a, a website to order them. This kind of comes on the heels of a now infamous clip of Saki, uh, Jen Saki, the White House press secretary, mocking a reporter for asking if they were going to do this. And then we also have on the back burner uh, a student loan question, which is that right now loans are set to restart on February 1st. And all the administration has said is they are considering whether to extend the pause that has covered the pandemic so far, that people don't have to pay back their loans uh, you know, while the pandemic and the resulting economic devastation are a part of our lives. And there's a coterie of Democrats who have been aggressive on this with with Biden, telling him to extend the the pause. And then another group, which is going further, includes Schumer, Warren, Ayanna Presley saying, by the way, you can cancel student loan with your executive power. Why haven't you done it yet? It's interesting. One thing, I mean, at at this point, I always wonder, like, you know, there are lots of things that are a given that a president can do with, with, with executive orders. But as we've seen, the things that are kind of totally settled end up not being settled somehow with the current, you know, with the current judiciary. But I have also, and this is another, you know, dimension of this, when the Build Back Better plan seemed to go down, and again, I'm considering it totally down and done, a lot of people were saying, like, he needs to get something on the board, you know, set aside, you know, that it's maybe good policy to start with. He can't end the year kind of having just just this massive failure, nothing happened. Um, And so the most obvious thing is, is student debt to kind of say, okay, well, yep, I got shut down here. But yeah, I'm still president. Let me wipe out, you know, like, 
half a trillion dollars of debt or something like that. Um, so I don't know if that's going to be, um, you know, figure into the mix or not. And I don't even, I, I, don't, I don't even, I mean, I, I, I guess there's this one issue where, and you probably know this better than, or more familiar with the details here than I am, but I guess there's this thing where, you know, if you're going to college, there's always that kind of mix of different loans. You get one of these loans, those loans, whatever. And there are some of them, and I'm not talking about like private loans versus, you know, kind of federally guaranteed loans. There are some kind of paperwork distinctions between different kinds of loans that even though they kind of made no difference on the front end and would make no difference to you now, because of these technical reasons, some the president can just wipe out and others he can't. And I think something that was holding them up is that if he does this, like, you know, your student debt may be, you know, wiped out to the extent it's wiped out. And like your friends, you know, your college buddy, none of theirs is for totally arbitrary reasons. And so I don't know, uh, I don't know how much that's figuring into it. I mean, who knows? So that's certainly, I think, a more compelling reason than what Biden has given publicly, which is that. Uh, he doesn't feel comfortable canceling the debt for people who went to you know, private prestigious schools. And I understand it, but we just came off a reconciliation process where we saw that in every instance where you know the wealthier corporations would have had to pay more, they ended up not having to do that. And I, I get it. You can blame Manchin, you can blame Cinema, but the reality of the world is the wealthy is incredibly good at holding on to that wealth and using their influence to not have to pay more and kind of build their lives upon a mountain of riches like a dragon in The Hobbit. But we're talking about students. We're talking about people who are deep in debt because they got an education, which we generally as a country think is like a pretty noble thing to do. So to me, come on, you've got to win. Maybe it'll get tied up in the courts. Maybe your authority is more complicated than it seems at least try. Try to cancel student debt. It's an easy thing to say. All the students are going to be happy about it. And we're coming off the end of a year where it's just been blow after blow after blow. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, 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 you know, if nothing else from a political calculus, you know, sometimes, you know, like in a football game, one team's, you know, really kind of taking it on the taking it in the teeth in the first half and the the coach the you know quarterback you're going to try to get you know get a field goal or get something right get just just you don't want to leave you don't want to leave the field like just like devastated like you got walked exactly. all over you want to get something on the board to kind of you know to 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 go into the halftime to feel like okay you know we're still in this and it is kind of like, i mean that is not an argument about the substance and the impact, but these things all go together because, you know, when you're talking about um, the people who will be benefited by it, a lot of those are potential supporters, right? It all goes together. Um, so I certainly, from from each perspective, th- there's a, it's just really hard to to end the year like this because kind of you know the 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 covid stuff is i have some criticisms of at this point of various things they've done on covid but i mean fundamentally i mean you know the, the omicron is not is not their fault but it's still the reality of what has happened and it's not a it's not a good feeling to end on end the year on you got to get you got to get something on the board right exactly okay um let's take some questions one is from brendan uh who's talking about the numbers from the virginia gubernatorial election called them depressing and unsurprising you guys and many others have pointed out the importance of getting your base to vote and basically asks whose fault is it you know who's in charge of base strategy of turning up the base of getting people to come out and why are they not being named in these kind of broad stroke recriminations yeah, I I I think that's a little off. You know, the base just for 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 listeners, the idea of a base strategy is you're not you're not you're not worried about, you know, kind of appealing to swing voters or new people that in a polarized electorate, you need to get your people out absolutely. You got to get every single person in you on your team to turn out. I I don't I I do not think that like in general people have decided that's not something you should do. You have, you actually do have to do both. 
And the fact that there was underperformance in the Democratic base, I, I don't think that's, that's not something like consultants did. That, that's just something that happened for a lot of reasons. One is that it's hard to get turnout when you're in power. And, and the Democrats are in power. Another thing is, is that the Democratic turnout was actually pretty good. It's just that the Republican turnout was even better. So I guess I, guess I would say this. I, I think to the extent that we are thinking in terms of a binary swing voter strategy, base strategy, and why are we still doing one and not the other, I, I don't think that's, I, I don't think that really captures where the party is right now or where people who run the campaigns are. The reality is, is that you, you need to find a way to kind of do both. And, and that's hard. And a lot of times, you, you, you know, you get it wrong, but it's not so binary. And I think it's important to realize it's not so binary because otherwise you end up thinking, is the fix in here? Are the people in charge of stuff idiots? You know, sometimes they are idiots. People do dumb things. And there are a lot of consultants that have, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's not that binary. And so I would, I would encourage, encourage everyone not to think of it in quite those rigid terms. I also think the notion of a base is a little more fungible than it seems. There's some analysis that came out today from the Democratic Governors Association of the Virginia race. And it's kind of highlighted finding was that there were a decent number of Biden Yunkin voters people who probably really didn't like Trump and felt very alienated by him, but who would not feel alienated by a more quote unquote normal Republican, which Youngkin very successfully portrayed himself to, to a wide swath of the Republican party. And then also kind of managed to walk the line with the more rabid Trump sections. Um, so I think you just can't divorce this stuff from the national atmosphere, especially while basically all the races in the United States are becoming nationalized. And this is a case where, like you say, Josh, it's hard to turn out people when your party's in power in general. Democrats are feeling very despondent at this point because of COVID, because of Manchin, because it became clear that an effective majority in the Senate is just not the same thing as a real majority in the Senate. All those things contributed. You could take issue with McAuliffe as a candidate. He lost two of the three times he ran. He's clearly not like a, a superstar. Um, all that being said, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is the the arm of the DNC that does the House races, is investing $30 million in an effort to reach out to communities of color in particular. Black voters have always made up the backbone of the Democratic Party. So I would say there you see a, a pretty purposeful base strategy there. But I think you just can't divorce these kind of races from the national conditions and the historical precedent that the party in the White House basically always loses the Virginia governor's mansion. So some of that is baked in. I think one other thing to keep in mind here is that a political base has always been a term of art in politics for forever. But Trump, because he kind of latched onto it, made it even more a thing, kind of broke through almost into, you know, the kind of, you know, mainstream political conversation. One thing that is really important to understand is the Republican Party has a base, a core of itself that is really big and fairly homogenous. The Democratic Party doesn't have a base. That is critical to understand. The Democratic Party does not have a base. It has, you know, uh, Kate just uh, mentioned something I agree with. African-American voters are the backbone of the Democratic Party in the United States. But they are not a base in the same way because they do not make up that, that big a part of the electorate. The Republican base makes up in relative terms a much larger part of the electorate. Democrats have African-Americans you know, what's left of the union movement, political liberals, the LGBT community. So, and the reason, the reason this matters is that you have to turn out a number of different groups of people who are not that similar. You know, 
affluent white liberals or just ideological liberals are a very different group from the bulk of African-American voters. And they're distinct from Latino voters. So the point is, is you got to, when you think about a base strategy, generally speaking, when, when, when people talk about a democratic base strategy, often they're talking about, well, the base is liberals, people who are really liberal, or the base is African-Americans. It's a group. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a few different groups of people. And it is significantly harder to get each of those groups revved up at the same time than it is for Republicans to get their base, which is basically white conservative Christians, all charged up. So it's, it's, it's just a little different than that. Yep. Okay. And our last question is from Ben, who said, I've noticed an increasing trend in political journalism to cite the number of sources talked to during the article as if it's some kind of validation. For instance, I feel like pretty much every hit piece on Kamala Harris has some line like, we spoke to 35 staffers, former staffers, old friends, (laughs) jilted lovers, political rivals, and sworn enemies. And Ben mentions that he's a litigator, and this kind of strikes him as overcompensation when lawyers don't have the real goods, so they kind of have to flourish this other stuff to distract from it. Uh, And he's wondering if this is a tactic to hide unscrupulous or lazy reporting. You know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a tactic to hide unscrupulous or lazy reporting. If, if anything, I think it's maybe slightly the opposite that, that this kind of, that this, this wording that you talk about comes from that show your sources movement for lack of a better word that kind of comes you know comes out of the Iraq WMD anonymous sources kind of you know thing a decade 15 years ago and what is at least at its best what it is meant to um, guard against is that there's a certain kind of article like that where oh everybody's bummed you know that kind of like kind of chatty gossipy about someone's office and everything's a mess and everything you want to make sure that it's not like you just know one disgruntled person in that office and they're talking to you and and you know we're just kind of he- hearing from one disgruntled person or your kind of you know your your favorite longtime source kind of knows everything and this is what they're telling you it's a way of saying no i've actually talked to like everybody and and I've talked to everybody. This isn't just one person, not one disgruntled person, not one person from you know this part of the office or that part. I've talked to everybody. And at least as far as it goes, that's good to know because if they're if they're working as an ethical reporter, they're not gonna if you know if everyone is saying the same thing, that captures something. It doesn't necessarily capture a lot, but that's not nothing. The other the other part of it is is that you're right to be suspicious at a certain level. Like, why do you need to have talked to a hundred people? You know, what happened to like getting just a source who knows what they're talking about or a source who knows what they're talking about and confirmation from a second source? I think the reason is, is that you see that kind of sourcing when you're talking about an article that is not really talking about concrete facts. You're not talking about, did the politician take the bribe? Did you see them taking the bribe? You're talking about everyone's demoralized. Everyone thinks that Kamala Harris is a bad boss or every, you know, you're talking about mood pieces. So there is no kind of one person can say it definitively. Um, And, you know, should we have mood pieces like that? I don't know. But it's a it's a kind of sourcing that sort of makes sense for that kind of thing because fundamentally you're talking about perceptions. I mean, if you if you saw an article that said, uh, you know, so and so took a five hundred thousand dollar campaign contribution and put it into their own personal bank account, and if someone said, and we've talked to seventy five different sources and they all agree, you'd be sort of like what? Like, I don't care what 70, like, I want to hear from one person who actually knows, who actually saw the documents. So anyway, I don't think it's a dodge. I think it is, it's maybe a little excessive, but it's a way to guard against that one thing that I, you know, that I described. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is a, this is tangential and not so much about the mood pieces, but there is I think to probably an unhealthy degree now, just the status quo on the Hill is that no one who you talk to will ever be on the record, even when it's like 
a straightforward, you know, hey, I had questions about this policy. And they're like, oh, here are the answers. You can attribute it to a staffer in so-and-so's office or, a, or a, you know, Democratic or Republican aide or something. It's just, it's gotten, that's the status quo. And I think a lot of times it doesn't matter so much because if you can add in the flavor of who they are, you know, if it's a Democratic aide, you know where they're coming from, you know what their spin's going to be, regardless of if you kind of know the name of the specific aide. But it is People should have to put their names on stuff, you know, because when when you don't, you're asking the reporter to assume all the responsibility for all of the different flavors of things that are influencing the person who said that. I mean, that's why it's good to have people on the record. It's a level of an accountability. And I do just think in general, Capitol Hill has gotten to a a bad place on that. Um, and it's, it makes sense because if no one else is going on the record, you don't want to be like, well, I'm a 25 year old staffer who will be proud to hang my name on this quote that might get me in trouble later. But I do, I don't love it in general. Yeah. I mean, uh, two things. I mean, one is that even if it is not a quote that anybody is upset about, the way that communications offices work, you 25 year old eight, you don't talk to anybody. That's not your job, right? And and if I see your name showing up like, oh, Josh said this, and I'm the sort of, the, you know, the brass in that office or the communications director, I call that person in and say, what the fuck are you thinking? Did someone tell you to talk to the press? So that's that, that's just, you know, that's that reality. But the, and the other point, which Kate alluded to, is it is a seller's market in, in, in talking to the press. You know, you a lot of people who are not in journalism often imagine it as a case where you get a quote and you say, you know what? Not printing your quote unless you'll put your name to it. And I guarantee you what you get is like, okay, make my day, dude. I could not care less because I don't need my quote. Like, like you begged me for a quote and now, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So it just totally. never, now, obviously there are certain times where you need someone to be on the record because of blah, 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 blah. But basically it is always a seller's market. You're begging them. And they don't and and so if they say, you know, you can source it to a random person you met in Washington DC, that's it. That's, you know, that's just how it goes. Yeah. I mean, even if you're writing some like a puff piece that their boss is going to want out, if you're if you're playing hardball, if they don't like it, you know what? They're going to roll out that same information in a press release. I mean, you're just you're totally right, Josh. It's always reporters being like, "Please give me every scrap of information you will." And then if they're like, "Well, we're not going to attribute it exactly the way you want it." What are you going to do? Be like, "Okay, now I have this information I can't tell anybody?" Or are you going to be like, "Okay, fine. Democratic aid, whatever." Yeah. You're going to do the second. Yeah, you don't you really don't have much say in the matter and uh to the extent you try to have a say in the matter, they'll just go to someone else. It's a seller's yep. market. Okay, so we have we have wrapped up uh, uh, the year 2021 on the Josh Marshall podcast. Um, I can't say it's been a fantastic year, but we're, we're all coming <laughs> through it in, in well, <laughs> Kate and I are coming through it in one piece. Uh, hopefully you are too. Uh, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you guys next year. See you next year. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.